From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. It's Tech Tuesday. Tom Wheeler, chairman of the FCC, explains it this way. Remember how MTV launched its I Want My MTV campaign to win a spot on the cable dial and how Ted Turner had to convince cable operators to carry CNN? The same wasn't true for music services like Pandora and Spotify or news outlets like Fox, like Vox. They didn't have to ask anyone for space on the Internet. Wheeler says the difference is closed versus open networks. He's proposing new rules that would allow the FCC to regulate Internet service providers, saying it's the best way to preserve an open network that encourages innovation without permission. But opponents say his plan would create government intrusion into a wildly successful Internet that should be left to innovate on its own. The debate comes to a climax next week when the FCC votes on the new rules. Joining me to look at what's at stake for Internet users is Gigi Sohn. She is Special Counsel for External Affairs for Federal Communications Commission Chairman Tom Wheeler. Gigi Sohn joins us in studio. Welcome. Good to see you again. It's great to be here, Kojo. Joining us by phone is Jeffrey Eisensack. He is visiting scholar and director of the Center for Internet Communications and Technology Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Jeffrey, couldn't dig out of the snow, huh? No, we got about six or eight inches out here in Virginia, and it was uh, a bridge too far, but I'm glad I can be with you by phone. Glad you could join us by phone also. Gigi, I'll start with you. Your motto for an open Internet is no blocking, no throttling, no prioritization. Explain what each of these prohibitions mean. Sure. So just to explain first that the rules that Chairman Wheeler is pro are proposing are the strongest rules ever by the FCC to protect and preserve an open Internet that promotes innovation, economic growth, and free speech. In that case, let's go there first. He's proposing to reclassify broadband Internet service as a telecommunication service covered by Title II of the Federal Communications Act. What exactly would that allow the FCC to do in terms of regulating Internet service providers? And then we can go to the motto. So what Title II would do is give the FCC the strongest legal ground on which to base those rules that you just mentioned. So no blocking. Internet service providers like Comcast, Verizon, AT&T would not be able to block access to lawful content applications and services on the Internet. They could not throttle. They could not impair or degrade lawful content applications and services. And perhaps most importantly to the American people, because they weighed in four million strongs in droves on this, is they cannot give favorable treatment for money or for other consideration. So no fast lanes, no priority for those content applications and services that are willing to pay. No blocking. No blocking. No throttling. No throttling. No prioritization. Paid prioritization. And again, it doesn't necessarily need to be money, but some sort of consideration. And those are just the bright line rules. There's also a general conduct standard. I call it the safety net, which says that any other practice that's not covered by those three bright line rules, if they cause harm to user choice or to edge providers, somebody can bring a complaint and say to the FCC, this should be illegal as well. Jeff Eisensack, your tech policy daily website has a countdown clock in the corner that's marking the hours till the death of Internet freedom, which will apparently take place on February 26th when the FCC is expected to vote on the new rules. How do you define Internet freedom? Well, Internet freedom is the freedom to innovate. It's the freedom to explore new business models. It's the freedom for new firms to enter and for existing firms to innovate and create new value for consumers. It's the freedom for the Internet to continue doing what it's been doing for the last 20-some years without the kind of uh, heavy-handed government regulation that Chairman Wheeler uh, is now proposing and uh, GG's and, and many others support. Um, to make a long story short, the concerns that GG uh, puts forward things like throttling, prioritization, uh, blocking. Those things have never occurred on the Internet. There's no, simply no evidence of a problem. Uh, and so what we have here is the imposition of a regulatory regime which will, bear, which will have heavy costs 
uh, in uh, pursuit of solving a problem which simply doesn't exist. Nor does it have a potential for existing? Well, you know, if we um, if we imposed big government regulation on every problem we can imagine in the future, uh, we wouldn't have any economic freedom, right? So we can we can imagine that uh, Google could impose uh, onerous discrimination on uh, through its search engine. Uh, we can imagine that any of the firms in the internet, all of which have market power, whether we're talking about Apple or Microsoft uh, or Google or any of the big companies, uh, all have a form of market power. So if we were to ask ourselves, could any of them ever engage in some kind of discrimination uh, that could be harmful to consumers, the answer is yes, all of them could. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're going to declare all of them a public utility, and we shouldn't declare broadband firms a public utility for the same reason. Gigi Son, you mentioned in the course of developing this proposal, the FCC heard from some 4 million Americans. What did people say they want the Internet to have or not have? Almost universally. Americans said they wanted an open Internet that was protected by the strongest possible rules. And much even to my surprise, many of them, the majority of them, called for Title II reclassification. I really do need to address some of what Jeff said. This is not heavy-handed regulation. This is not utility regulation that Chairman Wheeler is proposing. It is not utility style. We are going to forbear, which means we are not going to apply rate regulation, tariffs, last mile unbundling, there's no accounting or administrative burdens. So this is very light touch regulation. And as far as internet service providers incentive and ability to discriminate against edge providers, the conservative DC circuit, the federal court in this town, which is known for being very conservative, said when it struck down our net neutrality rules early in 2014 that ISPs have that incentive and ability. I'm happy to tick off at least four or five different examples of where ISPs in the last couple of years have discriminated, have blocked, have degraded. I'm happy to do that, glad to do that. But the fact of the matter is that the rules that were in place from 2010 to 2014 moderated their behavior, kept the ISPs in their best behavior, and gave consumer advocates a tool to go to those Internet service providers and say, look, I think you broke the FCC's rules. You need to moderate your behavior. And I will say that in the case of FaceTime, which some believed was being blocked by AT&T in an anti-competitive manner, it gave a tool for consumer groups to go to AT&T and say, we don't like what you're doing. We think they violate the net neutrality rules. And guess what? AT&T stopped doing it. They fixed their bad behavior. So the mere presence of rules makes the ISPs behave a lot better. And that's why we need those rules, because we cannot afford to have a closed Internet. Jeff, she hasn't given many examples, but she certainly gave at least one in the case of AT&T. You said these proposed rules are essentially a solution looking for a problem where there is none. Why is there no, or why should there be no valid concern about Internet service providers having and maybe abusing monopoly powers? Well, we should all be concerned about any large company that has market power abusing that power. We should be concerned about all of the big companies in the Internet and all the big companies in the economy that have that power. And that's why we have antitrust laws, and that's why we should have vigorous enforcement of the antitrust laws. But the antitrust laws are a very different uh, regime from the regime that uh, is now being put in place uh, by the FCC. Uh, and I do want to come back to the FaceTime thing, but let, but but to make clear, uh, it, it's the old saw about uh, the the capital a capitalist system is one in which everything is permitted uh, except what is specifically prohibited. That's the regime under which the American economy works. A socialist regime is one in which everything is prohibited except that which is specifically permitted. That's the regime that the FCC now proposes to put in place for internet service providers. So it's it's a very simple difference. Uh, on the one hand, uh, in most of the economy, we uh, say you do what you like, but if you do bad things, we're going to find out what they are and we're going to stop you from doing them. That, by the way, is precisely what Chairman Wheeler said he was going to do uh, for the in this spring, uh, last spring after the D.C. Circuit acted. He said he was going to put in place which would identify specific instances of bad conduct and police those. And well, many people would have supported that. That's not what they're doing, as it turns out. Back to FaceTime. <clears throat> 
the uh, what what we've now done is put in place uh, a political mechanism by which market decisions can get made. FaceTime is a bandwidth hog. FaceTime is video uh, is video calling, and it uses a tremendous amount of bandwidth on a mobile network. AT and T made the decision that it did not think that that was the best way to use the limited available the limited bandwidth available for its customers on the AT and T network. And as a result, you could use FaceTime on your AT and T phone from a Wi Fi connection, but you couldn't use it until fairly recently over uh, your mobile broadband connection. Now, that's in part because we were working with 3G wireless. Uh, now we've generated to 4G, and at that point, AT&T said, okay, now we have the bandwidth to support FaceTime, and FaceTime is allowed. Um, that's a marketplace decision. Uh, let's keep in mind who's on the other side of that decision. Let's keep in mind who's being discriminated against in the imagination of, of, of Gigi and her friends, and, and that is Apple. <laughs> Right, Apple, which uh, took AT&T to the cleaners when it launched the iPhone, uh, every, squeezed every dollar of profit uh, out of that exclusive arrangement between AT&T and Apple because it's Apple that has the market power, not AT&T. Why do we need a bunch of public interest folks uh, running to political bureaucrats in Washington to affect a marketplace decision between Apple and AT&T? We don't. What we're talking about here is political control of the economy, and I know that some of the public interest groups are very happy that they got their way, but why do we think that their way is the way that best served AT&T's customers? It's not what I wanted AT&T to do. Well, I guess I find it ironic that, that Jeff thinks that the net neutrality rules ought to apply to companies like Apple and Google, and, and he throws around terms like socialism. That. Look, the whole point of open Internet rules is to preserve the Internet the way it was intended to be. And the way it was intended to be was for me and you, Kojo, to be able to connect to each other, to talk to each other, to sell things to each other without an Internet service provider gatekeeper in the middle. It's all about end-to-end control. So all net neutrality is about, all this whole debate is about, is will users control the Internet or will Internet service providers Which control? brings me to this question, Jeff Eisensack, and I'll pose it to you also, Gigi Son. If Chairman Wheeler's new rules are adopted, first you, Jeff, what will change for Internet users? Um, well, I think, uh, first of all, we'll see uh, less choice. We will see it, and, and I think this will take time. So the first thing that will change is nothing will change uh, because the reality is that all of this will be litigated in court, first of all, and is being considered by Congress, second of all. So in, in the short run, you'll see no more change than you've seen over the, the last time the FCC uh, introduced rules. There was no bad conduct occurring, no bad conduct was stopped, and nothing changed. And so in the short run, nothing will change here. If these rules were to actually go into place, what you you would see is you would see the FCC having adopted a framework which specifically puts it in the position not of saying that no discrimination is permitted, but being required to approve uh, prices and terms in business arrangements which it determines are reasonable reasonably discriminatory rules. And so what you will see is every interest group which benefits from the desire to have a certain price here, a certain business arrangement here, or thinks that somebody else's price or business arrangement is a bad one, is going to show up at the FCC with their lobbyists, with their economists, uh, with their lawyers, saying, oh, no, we need to open a proceeding now. You need to answer our petition because this rule, this this price is discriminatory, or this one uh, we think would, would be reasonably discriminatory and you should approve it. New business arrangements will have to pass muster through the political process, which is the FCC. J.G. Son, you specifically said that the FCC is not seeking to interfere with pricing. Right. This is a total scare tactic by the ISPs and their surrogates. We are expressly saying no rate regulation, and on top of that, we are forbearing, again, not applying the regulatory mechanisms that would allow us to do that. Let me use an example. So for 20-plus years, mobile voice service, you know, the phone calls you make over your mobile phone, they have been regulated under a light-touch Title II. Not even as light as we're proposing, but under a light-touch Title II. That has not once led to rate regulation. And in fact, here's another interesting point. I don't know, Jeff, I'm confused whether you think net neutrality is a solution in search of a problem and we don't need rules at all, or whether you think 706 is better. I know Commissioner Ajit Pai thinks that there shouldn't be any What's rules 706? at all. So that is another provision under the Telecommunications Act that could give us legal authority. 
but Chairman Wheeler has found that it doesn't give us strong enough legal authority to adopt net neutrality rules. And what's interesting is, is those folks that like 706 as opposed to Title II, well, guess what? Section 706 gives the FCC the ability to use rate regulation. And guess what? We haven't used it. So the notion that we're going to just willy-nilly rate regulate, particularly when we are not applying the hearings and the tariffs and all the other regulatory mechanisms that allow us to rate regulate is just a scare tactic. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we will continue this conversation. You can join it by calling 800-433-8850. A decision will be approaching next week on net neutrality. Should the FCC regulate Internet service providers like Comcast Comcast and Verizon? What is your biggest concern or what are your biggest concerns about your Internet service? 800-433-8850. You can send email to kojo.wamu.org or shoot us a tweet at at, at Kojo Show using the hashtag Tech Tuesday. I'm Kojo Nandi. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Kojo Nandi Show on WAMU 88.5-1222 now. Cloudy skies, 21 degrees, wind chill of 14 outside. On the next Fresh Air, crime fiction writer Richard Price tells us about his new novel, The Whites, about a veteran detective in the NYPD. Price also wrote the novel Clockers, which was adapted into a film and wrote for the HBO series The Wire. Join us. Starts at 2. The Academy Awards are coming up this Sunday. Join us Thursday night at 10 for an Oscars special from The Frame featuring a collection of interviews with Academy Award nominees. That's an Oscars preview from The Frame, Thursday night at 10, right here on WAMU 88.5. Partly sunny today, topping out at 30. Mostly cloudy, cold tonight, low 15. Morning Edition is everywhere. Monroe, Sao Paulo, Beirut, London. Reporting from bunkers, alleys, jungles, and deserts. But most importantly... We're wherever you are. Start your day with a trip around the world and wake up with Morning Edition from NPR News. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from the Sanju K. Bonsal Foundation, dedicated to helping people help themselves through improved access to information. And from Folger Shakespeare Library, presenting Mary Stewart, the dramatic portrayal of England's most storied rivalry. On stage now through March 8th at Folger Theater. Tickets available at folger.edu. And from General Dynamics IT Data Center Solutions, transforming, securing, maintaining, and hosting government IT enterprises. General Dynamics Data Center Solutions, gdit.com slash data center. At the American Enterprise Institute, he joins us by phone to talk about the upcoming FCC decision on net neutrality. Joining us in studio is Gigi Sound, Special Counsel for External Affairs for Federal Communications Commission Chairman Tom Wheeler. We're taking your calls at 800-433-8850. If you have calls, stay on the line. We will get to your calls soon. Um, you can also shoot us an email to kojo at wamu.org. Jeff Eisenach, some people say we need net neutrality rules to protect the little guy, like a small startup or a musician who makes YouTube videos who couldn't afford to pay in a system where Internet service providers charge fees to deliver content quickly. How likely or unlikely is that scenario? Well, it hasn't happened, so... It hasn't happened so far. So here's what I think we should be concerned about and and what I think is a a perfectly legitimate uh, potential problem is that a big company like Microsoft uh, in the 1990s uh, decided that it saw a little com- company coming along called Netscape, uh, which was creating a product uh, that uh, had the potential to erode Microsoft's monopoly. And Microsoft set out to do a bunch of bad things to Netscape. In my opinion, they were things that violated the antitrust laws. It was prosecuted under the antitrust laws, both here and abroad. Uh, and it was forced to stop doing those things, and it paid literally billions of dollars in fines uh, as a result of having done them. And today we have a competitive market for for Internet browsers, as everyone who goes on the Internet knows. So that kind of thing, I think we should be concerned about. That's what the antitrust laws are about. But if if you look at the incentives, right, the incentives of a big company like Comcast or Verizon, um, it's doing business with companies like Netflix and Amazon and Apple, and those companies are all competing with one another for the value, the share of the value that comes out of the Internet ecosystem. As I mentioned, AT&T and Apple did this exclusive deal uh, when AT&T first started. Started uh, offering the iPhone, and Apple 
took virtually all of the profits out of that deal because Apple and AT&T are competing with one another. Well, in that case, Verizon went out, went to Google, and Google and Verizon com, uh, collaborated to sponsor, to create the Android operating system as competition. Well, what's the moral of the story? Big companies are not looking to quash little guys who create products that create value on their networks. What they're doing, actually, is looking to create more competitive markets for those products. Comcast and, and uh, Verizon would like nothing better to, than to see a big competitor emerge to Netflix. Uh, they're not trying to quash Netflix. They're, uh, or excuse me, not trying to quash the competitor to Netflix. They're trying to sponsor that kind of competition. So the whole theory just doesn't hold up to examination from kind of an economic perspective. And, that, and that's really what you have here is the commission following a political agenda advanced by the president uh, and his allies to do something for which there's just no basis in law or economics. Gigi Song? Well, I find it interesting that Jeff mentions how uh, you know Comcast and Netflix are such great buddies because Netflix has been complaining bitterly about the fact that Comcast for a long time was slowing their traffic at the interconnection. If I may be allowed to interrupt, we got a tweet from Peter who said, your guest is wrong about there being no evidence of throttling. Comcast slowed the speed of Netflix movies until Netflix agreed to pay the service provider a fee. That's exactly correct. And in fact, you know, when you talk about not evidence of a problem, we get dozens of informal complaints from consumers all over the country every single week and the one thing they've complained about the most for the last 14, 15 months since I've been at the FCC is the fact that their Netflix loads slowly over Verizon Fios, over Comcast. So there have been all these disputes at the at what they call the interconnection point. So that's the, the, the point where Netflix's network directly connects with Comcast or Verizon's network. And that's why our net neutrality rules will include these interconnection points under Title II. So a Netflix, a Cogent, a Level 3, and Amazon can file a complaint alleging unjust and unreasonable practices. And that's for the very first time. So as I said before, these are very strong rules and these necessary. These proposed rules would address this so-called interconnection issue. Right. Okay, Jeff Eisenach, your turn. Well, two things. So, Gigi, uh, the commission has a proceeding going on that, doesn't it? Uh, doesn't the commission conducting an inquiry into uh, Netflix and throttling of uh, and interconnection points, looking at the relationships between all those ISPs and Netflix and companies like it? Correct, and that's one of the reasons that when, Chairman when, when Wheeler, did, on did, his when, own when device did, and not when, as the president's when, urging, you asked me a question, Jeff, so I'm going to answer it. Okay, this is one of the reasons why the why. Chairman Wheeler, on his own device and not at the president's urging, believes that interconnection ought to be under Title II. Jeff Eisenhower. So uh, you're conducting an investigation. Has the investigation produced a conclusion? Not quite yet, other than but Title II. But, but interconnection ought to be under Title you II. But you, didn't you just state a conclusion? No. Just a minute ago. Now, you're an FCC official. Didn't I don't know who's just, interviewing me here, Jeff. Say, didn't you just say that unreasonable discriminatory throttling is occurring? I did not say that, no. That's what I thought you heard, no. what you said. Maybe other people didn't say that, but the commission no, I did not say that. that. What I said was... The investigation of that underway right now, it hasn't found that that is occurring. Most people who have looked at the available public evidence on that do not think that that's what happened at all. In fact, it appears that Netflix... Rather... To whether it, the appearance of being throttled in order to give but it the political whole, leverage. Whether it actually how, happened, how whether it actually happened FCC, or not. How can you, Gigi, as an FCC official, come on and announce something to be true, which your own agency is looking at and hasn't reached a conclusion on? Because whether or not a conclusion, agenda. whether or not a conclusion has been reached, Gigi Sone, how would the proposed rules prevent yes, such alleged you. throttling Th from occurring you, Kojo, in the future? Because that's what I was going to say. Well, we have not reached a conclusion. The mere fact that we are getting dozens of complaints led to the conclusion that we ought to have Title II authority over the interconnection point. And how it would work is very simple. It would not apply the bright line rules that we talked about earlier in the show, but it would give content delivery networks like Netflix, like Amazon, or transit providers like Cogent and Level 3, which carry a lot of video traffic, the ability to allege at the FCC that... Comcast, Verizon, AT&T engaged in unjust and unreasonable practice and allow us 
to determine whether that is the case. So right now our authority is unclear, Jeff, and that's why we are applying Title II authority to interconnection. We have not come up with a decision, but at least we're on solid ground to come up with a decision to see who is in the wrong here. We got a tweet from Doug who says, if consumer outcry caused AT&T to change its FaceTime policy, why do we need the strongest rules possible? So it wasn't consumer outcry, okay? It was actually, uh, it was a consumer public interest organization that I used to run called Public Knowledge. I picked up the phone. I talked to AT&T lead lobbyist Jim Sacconi, and I said, Jim, we're going to file a complaint unless you guys change this behavior. You know, you say it's reasonable network management. We're not so sure. And he said, okay, Gigi, I don't agree necessarily that this is a violation of the rules, but I don't want you to bring a complaint. So therefore, we're going to try to fix our behavior. And that's what they did. And that is the beauty of what those rules were and what these rules will be. I agree with Jeff on one thing. I don't think the whole world is going to blow up or change ever because the mere presence of the rules will moderate behavior. And and let me make another point because I'm sure Jeff will say, well, this will lead to less investment by network operators. So so let me put a list of the network operators who said that Title II will have no effect on their investment. Sprint, Verizon, Comcast, Charter, Time Warner Cable, Frontier. That's what they tell Wall Street. And Wall Street analysts agree. Title II, particularly without rate regulation, will have no impact at all on investment in the broadband sector. Jeff Eisenach, your turn. Well, Gigi, you're debating yourself on that one, so you're making a point I didn't make. The the point uh, that I would make, though, is no, I don't think that it is a good thing that you can get a call from your old friends at the at the organization that you used to run, which is funded by people uh, who want to complain about big companies, you know, who have a political agenda. So, you know, they they file a petition, you get a phone call, and you're unelected. You're not even a member of the commission. You're not even confirmed. And you pick up the phone and call a major U.S. company and say, I don't like your business practices, and you better do it my way or we're going to come after you. To me, that's not good government. I'm sorry. Uh, I never did that, and I would never do that. I'm talking about what I did in my previous job as a consumer advocate, which I have been for 25 years. So if you think that it's not – it is not – good practice for me as a, as a former consumer advocate to pick up the phone and talk to somebody at a company and ask them if we can negotiate a, a resolution without a complaint. I don't know how you think people You were not speaking on behalf of the FCC No, the I was time. not. I was speaking on behalf of the consumer advocacy organization that I ran at the time. On to the telephones. Here is Joe in Rockville, Maryland. Joe, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, good morning. Uh, I find some of the concept that Mr. Eisen is describing is rather disingenuous. There seem to be a huge number of items that are conflating conflicts between uh, capitalism and socialism. They seem to be describing freedom, which seems to be freedom for businesses to charge and do whatever they want without any counterbalance anywhere. It's a major problem. We have companies like Comcast who are flouting right now the fact that they want net neutrality rules, uh, despite the fact that in the past they have uh, created problems for traffic coming through. There's also a great deal of a problem when one keeps describing different individual products rather than an overall open network process over which information flows. I I just find so much uh, misdirection, in, in the comments that he provides, uh, it's just really a little bit insulting. Well, I want to address uh, one of the specific... I, think, I know he doesn't mean to insult. He's being very calm in his statements. But all of the labels that he's putting on things are the opposite of what's actually happening in this world today. Well, you made a, a lot of statements about a lot of things. Allow me to try to limit it to the essentially the kind of complaint you made about Comcast. Jeff Eisenach, a lot of consumers complain about the lack of competition and the high prices of Internet service. What would you say is the best way to address those concerns? Well, the best way, first of all, let's be clear about what net neutrality will and won't do. And I think, and first of all, I want to thank the caller for his comments. And 
uh, I wish we could have a longer conversation because I, I, you know, have the sense that he's a reasonable guy, and, and maybe we'd see more eye to eye. I certainly don't mean to be insulting anybody, but um, uh, but let's be clear about what net neutrality will and won't do. What net neutrality doesn't do is it doesn't place any limits whatsoever on the prices that uh, Comcast or Verizon or other ISPs can charge consumers. What it does do is it prohibits explicitly, and GG says there are no price controls, but the only price that uh, ISPs would be allowed to charge companies like Google and Netflix and Amazon under the net neutrality rules is for services of uh, delivering their content is zero. Right, so that's a price control. Right, the price control is set at zero. And, and my point is, I think over time there'll be a lot of lobbying that people try to change that price one way or another. But let's say for now it's going to be zero. That's a price control. So what what's really going on here is that you, you've got those big companies. They are the lobbying force. I mean, Gigi kind of makes this out as that are kind of public interest groups and ISPs and nobody else involved. In fact, it's the huge edge providers, the, or the companies I named, uh, who have been at the FCC demanding that it set a rule that says that. Uh, uh, Verizon and Comcast can't charge them any money. Well, that seems like a really good idea if you're Google or, or one of those other companies. Um, you'd love to get all this stuff for free. Well, who pays? If Google and Netflix are not going to pay, consumers pay. In the case of Netflix, which is using 30 to 40 percent of the bandwidth every night on the Internet, uh, what Netflix wants is for the cost of that bandwidth to be spread across all customers uh, as opposed to being picked up by its customers. So uh, I use Netflix. I'm happy to pay my share for the bandwidth that Netflix is using. But why should my 95-year-old parents who don't use Netflix get hit with that bill? And that's what Netflix wants, and that's what the FCC is about to impose. Did you saw? So there's a lot in there. First of all, consumers do pay for different speeds for different tiers of service. I have Verizon Fios, 25 megabits per second down and up. I can pay for 50 if I want. So there's nothing wrong with that. But the notion that edge providers don't already pay like you and I pay, that's nonsense. But what the ISPs want and what Jeff would like them to do is to pay twice. Okay, pay twice for a special quality of service. Pay twice for fast lanes. And the American people have told us with no uncertain hesitation that they don't want fast lanes, that that is not the open Internet, that is not the Internet that empowers them, that empowers small business people, that empowers people to organize, engage in free speech. They don't want fast lanes. Do you want to call that a price control, Jeff? Have at it. But the American people have been very, very clear, no paid prioritization, no paying ISPs twice for the same service. What, what percentage of your four million talked about paid prioritization, and what percentage? A large of, number. A, a large number, and what percentage of the four million were opposed to the title to to, uh, to the net neutrality rule? A very small percentage. We did our own inter- internal analysis, and it was a very small percentage. About twenty five percent, according to outside groups, but independent groups say about twenty five percent. You maybe deny that. On to Jim in Chantilly, Virginia. Jim, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes. Um, We've seen in the past that regulation can even stifle innovation. For instance, uh, back in the day when the the telecommunications network was in the infancy in the early 1900s, um, and AT&T had a monopoly over the long-distance lines, by by regulating wireless uh, radio communications, it could not compete or rival the AT&T's long distance, which would have uh, happened um, through evolution. But so now we're back to imposing regulation that will, again, stifle innovation and, 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 and throttle the progress we've made so far. How would you see these regulations stifling innovation, Jim? Okay. For instance, um, what they're talking about is um, access to the, to the, to the uh, Internet, okay? Yes. Um, these these uh, main providers provide a pathway to the Internet. Yes. Now, if you're going to say um, you can't, you can't um, um, regulate any um, traffic at all that goes there, that means they bear the, um, the, the, the burden of carrying over-the-top services, regardless of uh, how, how, um, how much they pay for it or how much they co- it costs them to build these, these uh, core networks. Um, they have to bear the full burden, and these over-the-top services are scot-free, and they just utilize it without uh, uh, any cost to them. Therefore, they're reluctant to build bigger highways because they only bear the cost. 
I guess, Gigi Son, you can explain why Chairman Tom Wheeler would like to see the Internet classified as a Title II service. Let me be super clear. And in fact, the caller was 100% right. This is not about regulating the content applications and services that make up the Internet. This is about regulating the on-ramps to the Internet, the Internet service providers, the Internet access providers. And I think we need to be crystal clear about that. Okay. And in fact, Title II protects against the FCC regulating beyond the Internet access provider. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly clear about what the, uh, the caller was getting at, but as far as investment is concerned, I'll make the point again that pretty much all the major Internet service providers has, have said that a Title II net neutrality regime will not dim investment one iota. AT&T is rolling out 75 megabits per second VDSL in seven cities and gigabit speeds in a number of other cities. So people are moving ahead. Google Fiber, which will also be Title II, is moving ahead. And they've all said, we will continue to invest under Title II. Jeff Eisenach, is there an argument to be made that this could stifle innovation? Well, absolutely. And again, I think it's an argument not in the immediate term, but in the long term. But if you if you want to see the future of the Internet under the rules that are being proposed, you can look at the U.S. Postal Service, which is using 28-year-old trucks that get eight miles a gallon, um, because that's the way public utility regulation works. And I think Gigi and Chairman Wheeler, you know, are very sanguine about, you know, their ability to say, oh, we're just going to we're just going to take a little bite at the apple here. It's just a nibble. Uh, but don't worry, no one will ever suggest that we should eat the entire apple because that would be evil. That would be bad. We would be out of the garden if we did that. Well, I hate to tell you, but there is no nibble at the apple. Um, and uh, what we will end up here is a we're on a on a slippery slope uh, back to the days in, of, of Ma Bell and AT&T uh, and the telephone monopoly, which everybody uh, rightly hated. Um, and that is explicitly what network, uh, what advocates of network neutrality are calling for. They're looking for a government-owned network. That's why this debate over municipal networks is so uh, is so uh, is so significant is they would like to see greater government control over the internet and then that's what they're getting and, and title two is a first step in that direction I would say just no are you I headed I, I would note that even even uh, Google which has been very uh, aggressive in supporting net neutrality as a principle and overall uh, according to the Wall Street Journal Eric Schmidt uh, called the president the White House when it was getting involved in the middle of all this and begged them not to impose Title II. So the consequences, the unintended consequences of this are understood even by the more thoughtful net neutrality advocates. Gigi Son, is your ultimate objective a government-owned network? So absolutely not. And let's separate the two issues. Because by the way, the American people also want their local communities to be able to determine what kind of broadband competition they want. This is not about local broadband. This is about open networks. Now, local broadband can get us the kind of competition that net neutrality really cannot. And what that issue is about is whether local communities, local elected officials can decide we are not getting adequate broadband for our needs. We need it for economic development. We need it for free speech. We need it to attract people, particularly uh, uh, cities like Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Wilson, North Carolina, in places where you know there's there's not a lot of activity, they want to bring these high speed networks in, so that they can grow their cities. It's not about government owned networks. In fact, community broadband includes public private partnerships. It includes some municipalities running networks, but it includes a wide variety of different kind of networks. And the question you have to ask yourself is, should a local community be able to determine for themselves, should they have the choice whether they want bigger, better broadband, or should they rely on the incumbents who in many cases say, oh, you don't need a gigabit, you don't need 100 megabits per second, you'll be fine with our 5 megabits per second or 10 megabits per second uh, speed network. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation about next week's FCC decision on net neutrality. Still take your calls at 800-433-8850. How do you define a free and open Internet? Should Internet service providers be allowed to charge more for so-called fast lanes that deliver content more quickly? 800-433-8850. You can shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show or email to kojo at wamu.org. I'm Kojo Nandi.
Coming up at one, legal loopholes and tenants' rights. Local landlords find new ways to evade regulations when buildings go up for sale. Plus, a history of Black History Month. A Howard University professor helped lay the foundation for African-American studies. Today at one on the Kojo Nam, the show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Good afternoon. This is WAMU 88.5. I'm Pat Brogan. 12.46. Partly cloudy. 24 degrees. Wind chill of 18 outside. Listening to the news on WAMU 88.5 isn't just about current events. You tune in because the information you hear matters to you. Whether the news is local, national, or international, the stories you hear on WAMU 88.5 are fundamental to making sense of the world around you. And it's why this service is worth supporting. Please make your membership contribution to help pay for your favorite programs today at 800-248-8850 or WAMU.org. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from American University. Know where AU grads land via the We Know Success site. Employment, grad school enrollment, and salary data by degree at American.edu slash We Know Success. And from the Warner Theater, presenting Maz Jobrani's I Am Not a Terrorist, But I Have Played One on TV tour at the Warner Theater on March 6th. Tickets are now available at Ticketmaster.com. Welcome back to a Tech Tuesday conversation on the FCC's approaching decision on net neutrality. We're talking with Gigi Son. She is special counsel for external affairs for Federal Communications Commission Chairman Tom Wheeler. Jeffrey Eisenach is a visiting scholar and director of the Center for Internet Communications and Technology Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Jeffrey, we got an email from Larry in Bethesda who says, to use the example of Microsoft and Netscape, what would have happened to Netscape if users had significantly slower service than Internet Explorer? Slow and fast lanes would seem to inhibit innovation. Well, I disagree, uh, and I disagree because uh, the reality is that uh, slow and fast lanes prioritization to the extent that it exists today, and there is very much of it, but to the extent it exists today is pro-competitive, not anti-competitive. So, for example, um, the companies which are offering free music services, so if you're uh, are, are, uh, Sprint and T-Mobile in particular, uh, which are discriminating, quote-unquote, in favor of online music, a long list of companies, not just one or a couple. Uh, but discriminating in favor of online music by allowing you to download as much Pandora or Spotify or iHeartRadio as you like without counting against that against your data cap. Now, that's an effort by Sprint to compete successfully against the giants AT&T and Verizon. It's a pro-competitive form of discrimination, not an anti-competitive form of discrimination. Uh, similarly, when uh, Netflix goes to uh, the big ISPs, as it did, and when it asks for advantaged carriage, as it did, uh, it is not doing so because it's trying to harm consumers. It's doing so because it's trying to get a competitive advantage. Um, now, as I said, it is to the advantage of the ISPs, and hardly the bad guys here as they're painted by Gigi, it's to the advantage of the ISPs in that circumstance to make sure that Netflix has competitors. They're not advantaged by dealing with a dominant uh, over-the-top provider. They'd like to see lots of over-the-top providers. Uh, so they're going to do everything they can to promote competition. If you look at the firms that are participating in AT&T's sponsored data plan, which is also condemned by net neutrality advocates. They're little startup firms. It's not the giant ESPNs, uh, but there are a number of firms who are paying AT&T in order to be able to deliver data to consumers for free. They're little startups, and they're doing so because they're trying to innovate. They're trying to create a better business model that will appeal to consumers and offer consumers something that doesn't exist today. It's a uh, pro-competitive business practice, not an anti competitive one as we see it in the marketplace. Well, I'm not going to opine on the sponsored data or the zero rating. Those are the type of practices that some consumers really like and some consumers don't like so much, and they would be judged on this general conduct standard that I talked about before. But I think the American people have been super clear that fast lanes are not good for innovation. They're not good for competition. Let me give you an example uh, of an issue that came up. You had wanted examples of problems. So here was another problem. I believe somebody filed a, a complaint about it. That Comcast exempted from its data caps its own services when it streamed uh, video to the Xbox. Now, to me, that's a pretty paradigmatic example of anti-competitive discrimination. 
So no other video services, not Netflix, not Hulu, not Amazon, they were exempt. They were not exempt from the data caps. The data caps applied to their streaming services, but not to Comcast. So that's an example of where, quote unquote, you know, uh, data cap exemptions can be anti-competitive. And that's something we'll be looking at very, very, very carefully. Gigi, after a court overturned FCC rules written in 2010, FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler tried to move forward without reclassifying Internet services falling under regulatory purview. But some Democrats, tech companies, charged that it would lead to pay-to-play deals between service providers and big tech firms. Then President Obama stepped up and urged tough new Internet regulation. Now Chairman Wheeler is proposing the strongest Internet rules ever. We're talking process here. Why the change of heart? Well, the chairman really was evolving. So the notion that somehow the president boxed in Chairman Wheeler is really sort of belied by the facts and sort of the calendar around his decision-making. So as I mentioned before, in June, we started this investigation into interconnection practices. By August, the chairman sent a letter to Verizon asking why it was throttling so-called unlimited data customers. In September, he gave a speech to the wireless industry, CTIA, which is the trade association for the wireless industry, saying pretty much that he was going to apply mobile to net net neutrality rules to mobile, just like he does to fixed wireline Internet service providers. And by October, Title II was already part of the solution. So the notion that the president changed his mind is really sort of belied by the facts. And let me make one other point. Presidents have weighed in on FCC issues since at least President Nixon. And I can give you a number of examples. President Reagan weighed in on the financial interest and syndication rules and the FCC. He he liked those rules, and the FCC stopped the proceeding to to, to modify those rules. President Clinton wanted to ban hard liquor ads on TV, and the FCC at the time started a proposed rulemaking to ban those ads. President George W. Bush... Uh, wanted to move ahead with media deregulation as soon as possible, and the FCC denied the requests of Democratic commissioners to delay those proceedings, to delay that vote. So the notion that presidents have never weighed in on FCC proceedings is really false, and he's just one of four million that weighed in. Jeff Eisenach, talk about your view of the politics and lobbying going on behind the scenes and why you think the FCC chairman ended up pushing for tough new rules. Well, one takeaway I hope everyone might get from um, this discussion is that, um, first of all, the Internet is an extremely complex um, marketplace. Uh, Lots of companies engage in lots of business practices, all of them very rapidly moving. Um, The technical issues are, uh, as the fact that the Commission has been investigating this uh, interconnection issue for months, and despite Gigi announcing the outcome earlier, the fact is the Commission hasn't announced the outcome, um, that there's any bad conduct happening there at all, um, is an indication that, in fact, these are complex issues, and they ought to be looked at, and they were designed to be looked at uh, by independent agencies as far beyond the pale of political influence as possible. Now, the president has campaigned uh, on net neutrality. He has made uh, net neutrality. uh, His website is uh, encouraging people to send petitions uh, to the FCC. He's raising money on the basis uh, of uh, his his PAC is raising money on the basis of net neutrality. Uh, So uh, what you have here is the politicization of an issue, which uh, by design at the FCC was intended to be made as far outside the realm of politics as possible. Um, Now, you can argue that it is such a big decision that it really ought to be made in the political context. And I think that's what members of Congress uh, are starting to think as they're looking at introducing legislation. If we're going to declare the Internet, which has been unregulated for 20 years, to be a regulated utility, that's that's a decision that Congress ought to make, not five unelected um, commissioners at the FCC. Well, there he goes again, calling it a utility, when that's exactly not what we're doing. We're not applying utility regulation. Let me make another point. These rules are actually stronger than what the president recommended. They go farther than what the president recommended because we're not only using Title II, we're using that Section 706 I mentioned earlier, that other part of the Communications Act that gives us authority over broadband, and we're using Title III of the Communications Act, which deals with mobile services. So we are using more authority than the president said. In addition, 
as I mentioned before, we are asserting Title II authority over interconnection, which the president did not recommend. So we're actually going beyond what the president said. So this chairman is not a lapdog for the president. He's acting independently, and he's acting based on evolution over a year proceeding. We got an email from Will in Adelphi who says, can your guests address the issue of price to consumers for broadband internet service in the U.S. versus the price in other countries? Isn't broadband more expensive in the U.S. than in nearly every other developed countries, country? Has the regulation of internet service providers in the U.S. been more or less socialist in comparison to regulation in other countries? Starting with you, Gigi. So the U.S. does tend to, I wouldn't say it is, you know, at the bottom of the list of all developed countries, but for speed and value, it's usually kind of in the middle, 21, 22. And that's, you know, partly, I would say, because of, of regulation that has led to not the most competitive market. The chairman himself has said, for the kind of broadband that we need today, that is 25 megabits per second down and three up, there is almost no competition about three-quarters of Americans do not have a choice of broadband provider when it comes to that kind of speed. And we're running out of time, Jeff Eisenach, but I'd like to hear your comment about that. Well, uh, the notion that the U.S. is behind the rest of the world has been disproven over and over again, and, and it's uh, sort of the old saw that uh, proponents of regulation come forward with. If you just go to Europe and look at what's happening in Europe, uh, we'd all be better off if we had that. But the Europeans have realized that, in fact, they've fallen way behind the curve on broadband deployment, and they've fallen way behind the curve precisely because they've adopted the kind of heavy-handed... Well, who's ahead of the curve? It. Uh, South Korea uh, is probably the leader, and the biggest reason for that, there are two reasons. One is they put a lot of government money into building fiber um, at an early date. And second of all, that may have made sense there because a vast majority of their population lives in apartment buildings where that may be a, in a kind of efficient way to go about things. But for the United States, it's a pretty, pretty different topography. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Jeffrey Eisenach is Visiting Scholar and Director of the Center for Internet Communications and Technology Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Jeff, thank you for, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Gigi Son is Special Counsel for External Affairs for Federal Communications Commission Chairman Tom Wheeler. Gigi, thank you for joining us. It's been great to be here, Kojo. And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojo Naamdi Show, local author Catherine Heine's early work made a splash in the world of fiction. Now her first short story collection explores the complex inner lives of women. Then at one, healthy teens in a world of junk food, how choices kids make in and out of school affect eating habits they develop as adults. The Kojo Naamdi Show, noon till 2 tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. And good afternoon. You're listening to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Happy Snow Day Tuesday for many of you. 12.59 now, partly cloudy, 26 degrees. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at WAMU.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.